Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. All right, Houston, we've had a problem. I hit record. I just told Kat that if she didn't like the way I was hosting it at any point, she should feel free to take over because um, that's the point of PhD I'm at. So I guess I should do an introduction. Hey, um, hey, Space Junkies. It's been a while. It's Annie here, your host. Uh, I love all of you dearly. So I've been writing a thesis for the last months that I haven't put out a podcast. And I have good news, which is that we're at about 90,000 words, which is too many. But objectively, I'd rather have too many than too few. And I have a due date in September, which is really exciting. So um, keep an eye out for that. The other thing that I want to plug quickly before we get started is that there's a space ethics library, which has just been launched. Um, That's through the SGAC, Space Generation Advisory Council, Ethics and Human Rights Project Group. If you want to find out more about that, you can go to my Twitter and there's a link there, or you can just Google space ethics library. There's loads of resources. So if you've ever been curious about space ethics or you're like, what is this thing called space ethics? Or you're not even really sure what ethics is. or You're not sure what space is. Or you just like want to look at some cool stuff. Uh, just Google it and check it out um, or, or Bing it or Baidu it. I'm, I don't care. Um, use whatever search engine you see fit, but just go to the website and look at it because it's awesome. And everyone's done a really good job putting that together. So that's that plug. Okay, let's get down to business. We are podcasting. I have a cup of tea. I'm sitting on the floor. I'm here with Dr. Kat Robertson Hassani. I'm very excited. Um, hi, Kat. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. I feel like I shouldn't ask you that because you're in the dumpster fire phase of your thesis, which is a very delicate yes. phase. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. I, actually, it's not too bad right now. I feel kind of good. But I think that's because I'm in a sort of sense of denial about it all. I, I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. You have because, okay, so quick intros, um, Dr. Kat has a PhD, unlike me. Wow, very exciting. Um, from the University of Alabama, and that is in political science, specializing in space policy and political communications. And I actually have read the thesis, and I've got to say, it like it clipped along. It was a rollicking read. I really enjoyed it. I've read a lot of people's theses, and this one... This one's worth a read. It was well, good. Thanks. I really appreciate that. I have a um, uh, desire that we make academic writing more accessible and readable. Um, a lot of times, especially within disciplines like political science, you get people who are um, very in love with their own words and the and the way of saying something. And I got some really great advice from one of my committee members that says, you know, don't get caught up. Like, 
just because you're in love with the concept, you're in love with maybe you came up with a great sentence, like that's not a reason to keep it in your thesis. You know, just if it's that fantastic, don't try to make it fit, just throw it in a, fit, in a footnote. Um, so for me, writing was really about how can I make what I'm saying clear and understandable to people who are outside of space? Because a lot of my work um, speaks to political science, but it's really meant to be widely applicable kind of outside of political science. So I had to really walk a nice line between being political sciencey enough for the political scientist, but while also being accessible for people outside of political science. And like a line well walked, if I do say so. So I am super excited to have Kat on the podcast today. Um, we're going to get into the content of the thesis and unpack it in excruciating detail. So look forward to that, listeners. Um, my listeners are used to the fact that I basically ignore them. And when I do refer to them, it's sort of with this like mild disregard for their feelings. Um, and I think that that's, that's the nature of this podcast and so far so good. Um, so where to begin? Well, I want to first get to know you a little bit. Well, I know you, but let the listeners get to know you a little bit. So Kat just moved to Australia. Um, we're actually recording this podcast in person, which is the first time I've recorded a podcast in person for over a year. Wow. Which is so exciting. I'm really excited. Hey, so it's Annie here. Um, yes, we did record this episode in person and Yes, it was before the COVID outbreak in Sydney. And yes, I have not managed to get the episode released until now, um, somewhat of a, a week and a bit into the lockdown. So um, sorry about that. But from that perspective, let me wish you a safe and happy lockdown period. And I hope you're enjoying this episode. And I hope it's helping you get through if you're in Sydney or anywhere else in the world. Um, stay healthy, stay safe. Love to all of you. But Kat and I were at a party in 2018 at Bremen um, for the IAC. And for listeners of the pod, if you want to go back to the episode about IAC, Bremen, there is a recording of us at a party, which was the Yuri's Night Party. And I did like a whole episode and there's a segment which is just <laughs> I recorded the sounds of the party. And so you might hear Kat in there somewhere. You never know. Um, it was a hell of a party. And then, yeah, so now you're in Australia. Like, let's begin there. What brought you to Australia? Uh, I came here for my partner, uh, who is a permanent resident and moved here in February. The mm -hmm. initial plan was that I would finish my thesis and follow, just to follow him just a few months later. But then uh, this little pandemic that you might have heard of happened. Oh, the novel coronavirus, eh? <laughs> novel coronavirus. Yeah. Um, so we were separated uh, nine months, and it took me about nine extra months to also finish my, my dissertation uh, with everything up in yep. the air, approvals for surveys. It was really just a fun, fun, exciting time. Uh, <laughs> But uh, we made the decision to, to come to Australia after we finished our PhDs. And so I finally got over here and um, spent the first several months that I was here working at night because I was still teaching in the United States. Um, so I would hold my office hours at 10 p.m., 11 p.m. actually, because the time zone was really difficult during the um, U.S. winter and our summer. Mm. Um, and so now I'm finishing up teaching and looking for what's new and next in space in Australia. Yeah. And the thing is that space in Australia is a cool thing. It's going places. It's very exciting. 
And I would say that you have already embraced the Australian culture. When I asked Kat, do you have any like quirky stories about being an American in Australia? She was like, yeah, the cockatoos, they're total jerks. I now just call them the jerks. And I was like, you're one of us, welcome. Um, yeah, do you want to tell us more about this bird life issue you've got? Because it sounds concerning. So I, um, the apartment they're in, unfortunately Annie can't see because it's dark here because you know, it gets dark at five now and it's very depressing, but I, my uh, apartment backs up to Lane Cove National Park and it is absolutely beautiful. Um, just great sunsets, lots of green, lots of birds, and um, some of them visit my balcony mm. and most of them are quite nice. The magpies are just very sweet and the lorikeets are adorable and just together and uh, the ravens come and they're very scared of everything, very mistrustful, but they'll come by. But the cockatoos, you know, used to be like one or two would come and that was so sweet. I'd give them, here's some sunflower seeds. Oh, you're adorable. Let that me was take your, your first picture. mistake. That was my first mistake. And then, but it took them like three months mm. to decide that maybe I should bring 20 of my friends. Oh. And um, so we had to, to stop being nice to them and just mm. ignore them. And, um, and they went away and then I was really sad because then all the birds went away for like two months and I was like, why did they hate me? But they've been coming back recently, just maybe like once or twice a week. And even today they came and I was like, Kave, oh, that's my partner. The jerks are here. Look. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> so I went outside and gave the jerks a couple sunflower seeds and then I ignored them and they looked at me sadly for a few minutes and then flew off. That's, that sounds lovely, to be honest. Very wholesome, very wholesome stuff. So let's get into the content of this amazing thesis. Um, but before we do that, what is political science? So political science, in essence, is just the study of politics in, in a systemic way. So it's not just armchair punditry, you know, which you can turn on the news and see the commentary, but it's looking at what's going on in political life from all different, you know, people specialize in voting, policy, um, lots of different areas, but it's really just a systemic investigation of politics as a phenomenon, how they affect our life in many different ways. Mm. So that's political scientists, political science. That's political science, friends. It's also political scientists. <laughs> yes. Um, and that's cool. That's excellent. And when you're talking about political communication, what are you talking about there? Yeah, so if we think about communication, that's in everyday life. We mm. have to communicate with friends, coworkers, people we meet randomly through transactional things. There's just communication. We communicate online. All of that is communication. So political communication would be communication that is enabling political processes or that is affected by political processes. Mm. So if you can think of this in um, a very day-to-day -day basis is, you know, do you engage with the people who you elect? That is sort of the basic political communication or even the vote, like voting is political communication. And then this can go to very high level is how do nations as states interact with one another in order to coexist peacefully or not on the planet? Um, so it really just runs the gamut from citizens communicating to their own government to governments communicating with, with, with each other to even international sort of coming together for supranational bodies like the UN. And when we're talking about space, the thing that I found really interesting about the first section of your thesis, so it's broken down into three sections, there's kind of three papers going on. And the first one asks this question, kind of who actually cares about space? 
And I think this is a pertinent question that I'm ashamed to say I don't think has been addressed in like the 50 episodes of this podcast that have thus far been released over the last three years, which is like, space is cool. We all like space, but actually do we? Is it just the people listening to this podcast who like space? Like, who cares? Who cares about space? Um, and sitting here is a person who can tell me that. So what do you think? So I think this is a great question because those of us who are space geeks and nerds and we get really into it, we love space. And typically when we have conversations with other people about space, even if they're not a space nerd, they're interested mm. because everybody has a little bit of love for space. You know, you really want to see people's eyes light up, like walk in with like a NASA meatball sticker. It doesn't matter what country you're in, you know, what language you speak. If you hand someone a NASA meatball sticker, it's like, this is amazing. Like, thank you for this because there's this human nostalgia attached to the exploration of space. But when we talk about who actually cares about space or cares enough to support it politically or give it money, it's very small. So there's a concept within political science called an issue public. Um, and so this would be a, a public or a group of voters. And that's what we're concerned about really in, in political behavior, political communication is who has the power, the voters have the power. So we would think of an issue public as a group of voters who care passionately enough about an issue in order to act politically or vote on it or either do other things which support it. So it might be um, lobby or write letters, call. And so for space, in most contexts, and there's not as been as much research of the issue public outside of the United States context, so I'll speak to what I know, which is the U.S. context. Mm. Um, that's a very small set of the population. We know that they are usually younger, male, Republican, educated, so they would have a college degree or more, and of a high socioeconomic status, which is a very you know small subset of the American population that would be motivated enough to actually make political decisions based on their support of space. Um, I did research prior to my dissertation on this to see if we could um, replicate the issue public for space in, in similar type questions. Um, in our general social survey. And a general social survey, for those who probably don't know anything about it, um, is run in most OECD countries. Um, and it asks the general public how they feel about different social issues. Australia has a general social survey as well. Um, and in the US, they include questions about federal spending on NASA's budget. Um, there's also a question that says, do you think that the federal government should pursue um, scientific research even if there's no immediate benefit? which is really close to what NASA's uh, motto is, which is, you know, for all humankind, and they're mm. pursuing uh, knowledge, not necessarily to have direct impact and benefit on Earth, but because, you know, they're fulfilling that, that human exploration curiosity. Um, so I actually looked to see if we could uh, replicate this in some earlier research I did that what is in my uh, dissertation is built on to see if like, okay, so I have this question that's really similar to, to NASA's ethos. And I know what NASA's you know, in the space policy issue public is. So does that question have a similar issue public? And actually, what I actually found out is that no, it's an overwhelming majority, 85 to 90%, depending on demographics of people who support government research, even if there's no immediate benefit. So that told me that there's a disconnect somewhere between this large portion of the American population that supports scientific research with no immediate benefit, and then the portion of the population of the issue public that supports space and spending money on space. So the that article that you that you the first part that you're referring to is actually going to try and answer that question and say why is there a disconnect? 
And why do you think there is a disconnect? When you add money. Mm. So a lot of people agree with things in principle. And mm. this is beyond, you know, space. A lot of times if you'll ask someone, hey, should we support human rights? Yes. But then you say, okay, well, the support of human rights might mean giving up some of your privilege or giving up some of your... And then people are like, oh, you know, I'm a little bit less giving that. Like, maybe we shouldn't spend our tax dollars on helping out uh, the Uruguay population in China or, you know, sanctioning China for that. Like, maybe we shouldn't do that. Mm. Um, so I think it's that sort of disconnect that once you attach real money or real tax dollars to something, people become a lot less willing to to want to commit to it and see it as something that's important. They start thinking, well, is this going to affect me? What about schools or what about jobs? What about infrastructure? Um, so that's where I think that disconnect is. And there's a lot of science communication things that can go around spending on space because we know uh, through research that money spent on space, and it's true here, I actually just had a conversation yesterday, yesterday, no, on Thursday, um, with someone else in the Australian space community talking about that money spent on space has a tangible exponential benefit for people back. So if you spend, for instance, a dollar or two on space, you might get seven or eight dollars back into your economy. Mm. Um, so it's just this, my supposition and my, my research goes to in this article was that there's just a disconnect in the way that people are co connecting the information they already have mm. to real dollar amounts and real spending. Do you think that people have a conception that spending on something like NASA's budget is frivolous or like I'm what I find really interesting is when you think about budgets and especially government budgets mm -hmm. there's a sense in which the num the dollar values are so large that people can't really comprehend what that means yes like, absolutely a hundred million versus a billion versus a couple of billion like what does that actually translate to People maybe don't can't think of a good way of no. It's very it. hard to conceptualize that amount of money. Mm. I mean, any sort of large number like that, um, and this is not my field, but there's a lot of psychological research, and that there there's a limit to what people can conceptualize and understand. Which is mm. one of the reasons why in my in my article that I use percentages as well as dollar amount because mm. people can say. I understand what 1% of a budget is. Yeah. Or I can understand what 5% of a budget is. I can look at a pie chart and understand that. Mm. Whereas, you know, once you get past really $100 million, $200 million, people aren't really able because it's just, unless you're, unless you're Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or, you know, Kenzie, Mackenzie Scott, Jeff Bezos' ex. <laughs> out of myself for remembering her name because I usually names fall out of my head. Um, those, those numbers don't mean anything to you because it's something mm. you're never going to see in your lifetime. Um, so it's, you know, when it comes to large numbers, you have to contextualize it for people. Yeah, for sure. You also had this point around the information frame versus the elite frame, I yeah. guess, in terms of communication. Can you unpack that a bit? Yeah. So let me first begin by defining an elite frame. Yeah. So a lot of us get our information from elite sources and we also attach a value to the name elite. So you might be hearing me say elite and you're thinking, I don't listen to the elite people, mm. but we mean here by elite, 
as in who's giving you the information, who has the most information on it. So that might be a politician, that might be an expert on TV, that might be a trusted news anchor, Mm -hmm. that might be a newspaper that you like to read. So this is like an elite information source, someone that you go to that has trusted information about a subject in which you are not an expert or that you're not informed. Mm. Um, So a lot of political behavior can be shaped by elite framing. So who you vote for may be shaped by the leader of the party at which you identify. So Mm. if you are a party member and your party leader says, you know, let's get behind this legislation, let's get behind this candidate, you're more likely to take that information and and assess it against your own information and say, yeah, that matches. I'll get behind this legislation. I'll get Mm. behind this party leader. So that's an elite frame. Mm -hmm. So that's elite information sources framing that for you. So an informational frame would take that down. And instead of asking you to mediate what you're thinking through an elite view, we're going to give you the information yourself and allow the frame of that question. So if I ask you, you know, what's your favorite color? And I just ask you your favorite color. You might think, well, my favorite sports team's color is blue. So Mm. I'm going to choose blue. Mm. If I frame that question, 90% of people who say that blue are their favorite color earn $90,000 a year or more, while 80% of people who say red is their favorite color earn $70,000 or less a year. You know, those are just made up numbers. Sure. But if I tell you that, that's going to influence the way that you answer the question. Hmm. So you can use it for good or bad. (laughs) And a lot of people do. I mean, if you've ever answered a political survey, you may notice that they can be written ways to give you a certain answer. I can literally ask you questions in different ways and get di- and get you to answer differently mm. simply by changing the way I ask you the question. Right. So the information frame here is not seeking to influence you to answer the question one way or the other, mm. but it's seeking to give you the information in order to contextualize that question into something you can't understand. So for in the case of my survey, I'm asking people how do you feel about the amount of money being spent on NASA? And I tell you how much it is uh, in billions for that budget year. And then what I do is I ask it in several different ways in a survey design. And so I frame it for you. So I say the amount of you know NASA's budget for the fiscal year is $19.2 billion. That is 0.045% of the federal budget. Do you think that it's enough, not enough, you know, don't know or about right? And so then what I do is I give that information in different ways and I frame that information in different ways to see if I can find out what is mediating your decision to answer that question. Mm. So is there some sort of factor that, that I can't capture that's mediating your decision? And what do you think? So... Unfortunately, my sample size was a bit smaller. Um, We thought it was a good number, but it wasn't great. And if you know anything about research, once you've committed to it, I was not going to go back and redo my whole sample. Oh, God, no. (laughs) Yeah. But I did see information that would happen at sort of the lower... So I had a few significant findings that Mm. the mediation of education level or gender or socioeconomic status could mediate the way that you answered. And I I already knew what the issue public. So I knew that, you know, if you fell within this like highly educated socioeconomic status, male Republican, that you would already want to say too much. But I did see some interesting um, splits in education level and also some gender. So, so you mean, sorry, that the the male highly educated Republican leaning people were more likely to say that we spend too much on NASA? They would be more likely to say we spend too little because they would okay. want to give more money to NASA. Right. 
Okay, good. But cool. what I did find was I had a lot of significance at like the 85% level, which is not what we usually use in, in finding this significance. We want to see like the confidence intervals at 95 or more. Um, however, if those findings would hold for a larger sample, mm. I would see more of those political and socioeconomic factors playing a, playing a role, which is what I would expect because there's actually um, research within political behavior and communication that shows that um, if you don't have information on something, what you do is you'll refer to whatever's the top of your mind. Mm. And so, you know, if I ask you a question and you really don't know a lot about it, but maybe you just recently saw a news report about something or you've been watching an election and so you're primed to think politically or primed in this way, mm. that you'll use this information. So we know that when people make decisions in low information settings, they tend to fall back on what are their their comfort zones. So like, what are they, you know, are you making a partisan decision? Are you making mm. a decision based on your gender? Are you making a decision based on your education level? Sure. So that's what what we expect and that's what i got um some evidence of within my dissertation that there was some of that happening hmm. um i do hope to rerun this and i'm actually thinking of doing this um very similar research using an australian data set yeah um, because there's not a lot of public opinion polling on australian opinion on space mm. um so I, I might actually rerun the same survey sort of using the same types but um, replacing with Australian data and then comparing the Australian US and to see um, how that is. Yeah, uh, that sounds but it's amazing. Interesting. But it's definitely, it's, it's, it, as any good thesis or dissertation does, it sort of led me to more questions than answers. Yeah. Um, so I still am not 100% sure how the information frame is working. I do know that giving information changes the way that people answer the question but I cannot say with confidence beyond one or two factors what exactly that is. So it's yeah. just a very open area of research and something that I do intend on going back to and answering more, more, six, more, what's the word out of my brain, more comprehensively. Yeah, well, that sounds cool. So, okay, so if you're um, in Australia and you've got money to throw at doing research into this question, um, contact Kat. Yeah, I would love to. <laughs> All right. Um, and then the second sort of chunk of your thesis was really looking at the way that U.S. space policy happens. Mm -hmm. And I want to skip over this relatively quickly, not because it isn't interesting, but because for like as an Australian, I kind of read all of this stuff and I'm like, yes, but the US political system is broken. So of course this happens. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but, but no, but what I found really interesting was the comment you made that there are only occasional changes made to US space policy. And you point to the fact that space doesn't have constituents in the same way, like in the way that health policy, for example, is something that everybody cares about because mm -hmm. everyone intersects with the health system um, or maybe they should but with space policy there actually is a really small number of people who think that they intersect with it even though a lot of us use space technologies in our daily lives we just don't think about it in that way um, so that was really interesting to me and then also this idea of we've got this new space thing happening but we've also got still a really strong old space club, which is kind of this legacy of these big military industrial corporations, um, like your Lockheeds and your Northrop's and your Boeing's and so on, who are kind of very much 
setting an agenda still in some way. Is that a fair characterization or have I... No, I think it's very fair. Okay. Um, so in, in political science, we think of constituencies and you may have heard you know, people talk about, you know, I have to represent the people who elected me. And so mm. the people who elected you would be your constituency. Because of, mm. So constituency isn't, isn't unique to the U.S. context. Every, yeah. every politician has a constituency. Um, but it isn't one that, that is large. And it doesn't matter where you're in. There may be um, an exception for the Czech Republic has a very robust little space program. And their people, like Czech citizens, are really interested in it. There's been some research mm. on it. And it, it's highly salient. And salient is just a fancy word to say, like, interesting. And, and it rises to people's attention, right? So it has salience. Mm. Um, so in the Czech Republic, it's, space is highly salient. Like, people follow it and really... Um, in within the citizens, but in general, it's not a salient topic. You don't hear about it unless you know Elon Musk has launched a Tesla to space, or there's an accident, or something really big and momentous is happening. Otherwise, you know, space doesn't even really rise up. On you know, you don't turn on the news and see it, um, and because you don't turn on the news and see it, it doesn't touch your everyday life in a visible, meaningful way. Um, or meaningful to you. I think, obviously, that space touches people's lives in very meaningful ways every day. But for the average person, they're not going to see that. Mm. Um, so that just means that it sort of frees up politicians, legislative bodies, and people who are interested in affecting what politicians and legislative bodies do uh, to sort of make decisions without a lot of constraint, worried about what will the public think about what we do. Mm. So that means that actors that have a lot of power, either because they're old space and they've been in it for a long time, so you think of the, the military industrial complex there, you know, they really have a lot of freedom to work with policymakers on what will be best for them. And this is interesting in the Australian context because Australia has really put a lot of uh, importance on enabling the commercial space sector. And because Within Australia, it is also a very low salience issue with, I would imagine, and of course this is just supposition because I haven't done studies on this, but I would imagine a similarly small space constituency. That's going to give the commercial space sector within Australia a lot of ability to influence what happens at the legislative bodies and what are the policies that are made for space. Um, and that's just because the public isn't watching. It's a lot harder to make controversial policies if someone's watching you. And, and space is one of those places where, you know, you're not being watched. Now, that doesn't, doesn't mean that good policies don't still happen, but it also does mean that sometimes policies happen that are favoring commercial interest over general public interest. I think that's a really interesting insight, actually, because in the Australian context, I would say there is a bit of an interplay between new space and old space in the sense that, yeah, we don't have such a strong old space, but at the same time, all of these companies, Lockheed, Northrop, etc., um, Raytheon, all of them, they all operate in Australia mm -hmm. and they have strong interests in selling their very expensive products to our government, especially in the defense sector. Oh, absolutely. And What's interesting is like our space agency is very much positioned in the industry and industry and industry and industry in the, in the industry and ec like economic and financially <laughs> innovation -y stuff, right? Yes. It's all positioned in that civil space. 
And so in theory, as you say, there is this like greater answerability to a new space economy, to all of these companies starting up and doing their own thing. At the same time, I think there's a real tension there because at the end of the day, like we have these new space companies, but there's still is significant lobbying power that exists from these like massive military industrial complex companies. Well, and Australia has such strategic importance in this area uh, in terms of ground-based communications to space assets. Uh, and, and Australia and, and its partners, Five Eyes partners or Four Eyes, depending on who's mad at China now, uh, <laughs> or who's trying to, um, to better communicate with them. But there's a long history of, of cooperation in sort of this defense area where mm. these legacy companies are, are operating. So while, you know, to the average observer, it's not going to be really clear that there is this huge impact of sort of large companies, even though there is a, a, a vibrant new space community within Australia, you know, the, the impact of the older legacy military industrial complex companies cannot be overstated. Mm. Um, they're here, they're operating and they are dependent on some capabilities that are available in Australia for, because of where Australia is, because of its location, um, its access to, to coverage um, that isn't always available. You know, you can't, you can't maintain 100% contact with your satellite if you're only having a, state, a ground station in, in the US or in Europe. Yeah. You need another ground station, and that has been Australia for, for decades. Mm sort of outpost of American operations yeah. down under. Yeah, and and European operations mm. and, and everything. And then um, and Australia has a real place of tension, right? Because we're in Asia Pacific, so we need to maintain good relationships, not only with, with the US and Europe, but also we hope to maintain good relationships with other Asia Pacific nations, China. I mean, we've mentioned China several times. Mm. And, and it was interesting because within the US, there is definitely a... Uh, prior to the Trump administration, there was a softening sort of that was that was happening within the space community um, towards more a realization that cooperation with China was going to have to happen. Um, in 2015, 16, I can't remember the exact time, but um, uh, Charlie Bolden was NASA administrator and he said on the stage at IAC during a heads of agencies conference, you know, we can't keep ignoring China. And, and in fact, they are already cooperating in some ways with China. Like it just, it gets, this is political communication one-on-one, mm. you know, we, we frame this a certain way in the news. And so we tend to look at, you know, at this very adversarial relationship. But the fact is, is that U.S. and China does actually have a, a decent amount of cooperation, as does China with Europe, China with Russia, um, and, and China certainly with um many nations in Africa and other places has mm. huge cooperation. Um, but it's just, there is a tension there. And I think that's just yeah. where it comes from, that there is um, there's a long relationship between Australia and other, and other nations on these security things. And a lot of times the, the security or defense aspects of space are a lot more hidden. And we don't think about that. When you ask an average person about space, they're going to talk to you about sort of the civil space because that's that's what gets the press. That's what's in the news. Um, but increasingly, space is sort of the next warfare fighting domain. And we've got to come to grips with that of what does that mean for the peaceful exploration of space? What does that mean for the Outer Space Treaty? What does that mean for the Moon Treaty, the Artemis mm. Accords and other things? 
Yeah, which I think is a really good segue onto the final paper in your thesis, which is really about the global commons and this concept of what does it mean to say that space is a global commons? What does that actually mean for the way that we approach um, moving into space, doing stuff in space, whether it's science, whether it's cooperative activities, or whether, as you say, it's war fighting. And I think, I think I personally really resist calling space a war fighting domain because that is a technical term mm. which has a technical application and utility which when used in that context is a good thing to discuss but i think it can be um misconstrued as meaning that like space is a place where we're going to go fight wars yes which is not what it actually means no exactly um and so what i really like about the final paper of your thesis is you kind of grapple with this issue in a really interesting way with um and there's this delineation you draw between kind of the realist approaches to how we think about space um politically particularly and the liberalism approaches of how we might think about our activities in space so yeah if we accept we've got a global commons here then what happens then how do we do something with that and how does politics play out in that context. Um, do you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, so maybe yeah. I should start maybe defining the difference between realist and liberalism because it's probably not a, a term a lot of people grapple with or understand. This is so kind of you. I've got to <laughs> say, normally I just like write over the, the, the requirements <laughs> of my listeners. I'm like, they'll figure it out. Um, no, you're quite right. So, um, hey listeners, uh, Kat has called me out here on just <laughs> proceeding with jargon as if everyone gets it. And this is a very good point. So Kat, please do tell us. So I'll do this in a brief way because I mm. do also believe your listeners are quite smart and probably have some sort of uh, interest in this. Um, so just in terms of political science, realism and liberalism are two different sort of schools of thought within international relations that explained how states interact and work with each other. So realism has states as the ultimate actor. So the interactions between states happen because states are seeking to maintain, cement, or gain power. So it's a power relation dynamic. Liberalism says that, no, no, the states, there's a better way. We, have, we can have this ideal that there can actually be uh, supranational organizations. So obviously the United Nations is sort of the ideal of this, that say that states can work together towards a common good that doesn't have to be about struggling for who has power. Mm. Um, so I illustrate this using a uh, example of what is the future gonna look like? Is it Star Wars or Star Trek? So you can think of Star Wars as a very classic realist fantasy, whereas Star, uh, or no, Star Wars is the classic realist fantasy. Let me get that correct. <laughs> so, please don't come after me, Trekkies. <laughs> <laughs> and then Star Trek is this liberal idealism mm. that, that we can move beyond war, we can move beyond power struggle and do what is for the greater good of all. Mm. No, I think that's a really useful framing. Thank you. <laughs> um, and one of the things that I think is particularly warming up in this space is the space resources discussion. So um, shout out for my 
favorite legal subcommittee of the entire UN. The United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space Legal Subcommittee, or UN Copulous LSC, which met uh, just weeks ago, actually, with informal discussions convened, um, co-convened by an Australian representative, um, Professor Stephen Freeland, who's been on the pod before, an absolute um, stalwart of Space Junk Podcast. If you're listening, g'day. Um, anyway, so uh, the discussions happened, there were informal consultations around space resource utilization mm -hmm. and exploitation. And at the end of this meeting, which was so exciting that it actually happened, there was a decision made that there would be um, a working group put together to consider this issue. But I think it's one of those ones where when you talk about space utilization, again, people are like, oh, Jeff Bezos is doing a thing. But it's actually a really deeper question because obviously resource utilization as a concept goes to those deep questions of mm -hmm. who has power and exactly. who's wielding it, right? Um, and you talk about this in your paper. So I'm going to throw to you to tell me I'm wrong or whatever you need to do at this point. But what's your take on the way that we're discussing space resource utilization at the moment? Because what I found amazing about it is we still haven't really done it. Yeah. And we're having so many conversations about what we want to do. And to yeah. me, it's a discussion that's actually about this question of realism versus liberalism and what approach we want to take and then where commerce fits into that. Yeah, no, what do you think? I, I agree. I mean, I, this is actually where a lot of my, my current research post my dissertation is, is lending itself towards because I'm really interested in this question because I think space resources and the way that we use space really speaks to the power dynamics that already exist on Earth between those who have access and those who don't. Mm. So um, I make a comment in, my, in, my, in this article about let's do what we can to prevent having sort of an East India trading company in space um, because these really are questions of, of power and power dynamics. So when we think about space resources, right now no one is bringing space resources back. It's prohibitively expensive. We haven't developed the technology. But it's happening. It will happen. You know, in the next hundred years, we're going to be on asteroids, mining asteroids, bringing back resources. We're going to be on the moon using moon's resources. These questions are real. And so I, for one, I'm really excited to see the conversation around this, but also really afraid that the conversation is going to sort of cement into international regulation, law or practice the way that these things have happened already on Earth. Mm. So this is thinking about the terms of, of colonialism, colonial power, and how resources are extracted. So while there are, to our knowledge, no, no life on, on asteroids that we need to worry about disrupting their culture, the ability to access these resources happen because some nations, over the course of centuries have been able to gain preeminence and prominence within the international order and structure because they pillaged the resources of other countries. Mm. And so we're at this point now where if we make regulations that do not consider the fact that any resources we bring back from space should be able to be equally enjoyed and accessed by all on earth, we're going to just continue to widen that divide that, ha that was started 
during the period of colonialism and which is still continuing because colonialism is still happening in some places on earth uh, where resources uh, from less economically developed or less military powered nations are being taken by more powerful nations so this for me is that really interesting question is like what comes into play are we going to have a realist paradigm or are we going to have a liberalist paradigm are we going to recreate the same power structures in our space exploitation and use that are already privileging some on earth while disadvantaging others and so that for me is what's really interesting about this conversation where we are now and when I see regulations being written with commercial actors and not bringing in voices from others who have experienced the other side of this, not bringing in indigenous voices, not bringing in voices from non-spacefaring nations, you know, that worries me because I can see being codified into international ways of practice things that are going to continue to widen the already very wide gap between the have and the have-nots here on Earth. So that for me is what's really interesting in that conversation. And we don't always take the time to stop and realize that we're at an inflection point for ensuring that access to space is just and equitable. Mm. And that's not just gonna happen by accident. We, we know within any realm, when we talk about just an, an equitable access that it doesn't happen by accident. It happens because people intentionally put it into the way of doing whatever we're doing. Um, so for me, that's what's really interesting because space resources really have the the possibility of completely disrupting the economic system on Earth. Because if we bring back something that is so valuable that it makes everything else on Earth less valuable, it's going to change the way that we do everything. And so if we don't have some sort of plan and action to handle that in a way that doesn't create vast economic disparity well it's going to create vast economic disparity i think i want to leave it there actually i think that's a really powerful statement to end on um kat this has been a delight if people want to know more about you what can they where can they go? What can they do? How can they find out more and follow what you're up to and stuff? Yeah, um, I'm mostly on Twitter. So I'm at every social media network almost um, at, at Kat Robison. So that's K-A-T-R-O-B-I-S-O-N. Um, so that's Twitter, Instagram, like slash for LinkedIn, any of that. Or my website is katherinerobison.com. You can find me there. Um, and always reach out to slide into my DMs, send me an email. Um, I'm always happy to chat about any of this. Um, you can also check out, I'm on another podcast called Talking Space. We mostly talk about what's going on in US space, though we typically do have some international segment each time. Um, and we do that monthly about sometimes, depending on, on the availability of everyone, we might try and get bi-weekly, but typically we're monthly. Um, so you can check us out there at Talking Space um, on Twitter and at TalkingSpaceOnline.com on the interwebs. Incredible. And Kat is also a very gifted poet um, who has some poetry on that website, katherinerobison.com. Yes. Is that it? So go check that out. Highly recommend. Um, in addition, because I feel like it and we didn't get a way of like bringing it up artificially, I'm just going to point out here that Kat also speaks an absurd number of languages, including but not limited to Turkish, Persian, Setswana, Spanish, Latin, and French. And when I like inquired about the Latin, because I also used to be a Latin scholar, 
um, and was like, but do you really speak Latin? Kat informed me that actually she did a program where they did speak Latin because it's America and that's what they do there. Unlike here where you just have to read it and be miserable because, um, <laughs> because that's what the British people say we ought to do. I can so- still recite the first like line of our Latin book. I don't know if you had to use Eke Romani. Eke Romani! Yeah, it's like in pictura es. Escuela. Yeah, it's like Flavia. Flavia. Love it. Um, <laughs> so on that note, I'm going to say to all of you out there, all of you wonderful Space Junk listeners, this has been wonderful. Please continue to um, tell people about the pod or not, um, support it or not, um, rate it or not. Um, if you don't want to rate it five stars, please don't rate it. That would be really great. Um, and if you want to reach out, you can always reach out, especially if you're in the Czech Republic, which apparently has a really clued in population when it comes to space. I know we do have some listeners there. So if you're a listener from the Czech Republic, uh, please get in contact. You can email the space pod at gmail.com. You can find me on the socials as at Annie Hanma. Um, you can do whatever, but on that note, I'm going to say Walete to our listeners. <laughs> Which, of course, is goodbye, plural, in Latin. <laughs> I think I've broken cat. <laughs> That's fantastic. Do you have anything to add? <laughs> I don't think I was not expecting the line. <laughs> Cheers. All right. <laughs> See you later, listeners. It's been lovely. <laughs> You've been listening to Space Junk. If you'd like to get in contact, look me up on at Annie Hanma on all the socials, and you can also send me an email on thespacejunkpod at gmail.com.